Okay, everyone, we've got part two of our playoff post-mortems with JFresh. Um, in this episode, we are breaking down what's next for the Penguins, the Oilers, the Blackhawks, the Predators, and the Rangers. If you missed part one, make sure you check that out, episode 32 of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. Pittsburgh Penguins, is their window right. still open or is it closed? All right, so I got to go into this saying that I am biased because this is uh, this is the team that I cheer for. So I'm going to do my best to be objective. Uh, whether their window is closed is completely up to them. If they make the right moves this summer, then I think they can compete for the next two to three years. If they make the wrong moves or, you know, don't make the right moves, then I think that there is every chance that this team is done being a serious competitor. Which you can theoretically say about most teams, but I feel like it's especially present in a team that kind of is at the tipping point that the Penguins are, where their best players are in that 33 to 34 range. And what happens down the lineup is more integral than I think with, you know, what you'd say like is like a regular team. Yeah, I think they've done a really good job of avoiding some of the pitfalls that befell the Chicago Blackhawks and the Los Angeles Kings is kind of the other teams that were dynastic in the, um, in the 2010s. Um, but you've got Crosby starting to wonder out loud if the cliff isn't near for him. I I'm the same age as him. And like, I, I don't have the same kind of miles on me, but I also notice like there's, there's less pep in the steps these days. So I, I, I wonder if he's not feeling the same thing. Yeah, I mean, like, he, he had a tough year. Like, he, he really was not what you would hope for from him this year. Uh, before his injury, after his injury, uh, in the playoffs, uh, he was a guy who really struggled, especially compared to the, frankly, MVP caliber season that he had put up the previous year, uh, which obviously I think should worry a lot of people. I mean, fortunately, I guess he has a long offseason to work on all that stuff, and Hopefully he'll be able to uh, come back and play at, uh, you know, even if it's not that kind of top five in the league level anymore, it'll be, you know, functional first line center caliber. And, and hopefully that would, with a properly put together Penguins team, be enough to get them back in the big conversation. But uh, yeah, I mean, they've, they've definitely done a good job of avoiding, like you said, what the, what the Blackhawks did. Moving on from Kessel, I think, was a very shrewd move that has, has really proven to be the right one based on how poorly Kessel played this year. And I think keeping Kessel would have been, like, exactly that kind of, like, Seabrook-type loyalty thing that has really plagued those kind of early 2010s dynasty teams. Uh, and the Penguins have avoided that. I mean, the main, like, the main injuries the Penguins have, you know, like the, the metaphorical injuries, are self-inflicted. And it's just a matter of, player deployment, player evaluation, you know, easy things theoretically to address. Uh, the issue is just a refusal to address them. And I'm sure that we'll, we'll get to some of what those issues are. Yeah, you mentioned how tough this season was for Crosby just in terms of the injuries. As I understand it, that like abdominal tear situation where they have to go in and they put in like a mesh screen and they have to like basically completely rebuild the connective tissue there is like apparently it's incredibly painful and you just think about how everything that you do starts with your core 
And so much of what Crosby does as a player is built around him being at 5'11", somehow the league's best power forward and how like having a strong core and leveraging all that stuff, that would just be completely taken away from him by having that type of abdominal injury. So I wonder yeah. if, if he doesn't come back from that, if he's not going to be fantastic. And also just relating to these playoffs, I think Stamkos has the same injury. And so that's probably a reason why he hasn't been playing and why if he does come back, he's probably not going to be that good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with Crosby, at least, uh, he, I mean, his, his hockey IQ and, and other abilities are strong enough that I feel like he's a guy who, especially with kind of a full off season to think on it and train on it, would be able to adjust his game in such a way to kind of minimize those areas that he would have been limited by the injury. But I mean, at the same time, you know, like you said, like his, his whole thing is kind of balanced and puck protection and, and all of that. And, and I think that that was an element that was, that was missing for him. I think he also, I mean, his just decision-making was, was off quite a bit. Like he, you just saw him turning the puck over quite a bit more, just making these kind of boneheaded plays that you just wouldn't count on, on him making. Uh, and I think that a, another element of it and, and one that's been kind of consequential for the Penguins is just like the, the lack of composure of the team, not in the way that it was in 2012 when the team just kind of melted down and lost their minds and got furious, but just kind of like a, a deadening frustration building throughout a series that just leads to the team kind of plotting and dumping pucks in and not retrieving them and just crap like that. You know, that's the kind of thing that can get really compounded by having an injury that's nagging you over and over again. And I think you saw it with Crosby. I think you saw it with Malkin, who is who's in the process, I think, of getting off-season surgery. You know, this is the kind of thing that if, if the Penguin Stars aren't really able to carry the torch and, you know, run through walls that – that's a huge issue for the Penguins. Yeah, as it turns out, your best players have to be your best players. Um, can we yeah. let's let's address the elephant in the room? Jack Johnson was like a, a huge problem, enemy number one of the play-in round. No one had worse optics in the play-in round, and yet Jim Rutherford reinforced his commitment to him. And I guess that's what you do when you still owe him what, like three more years at three plus million. And he went out of his way to throw Justin Schultz under the bus because he's a free agent. So I guess he's not coming back. If the coach wants to play him and the GM doesn't want to get rid of him, then how do they avoid spiting themselves? Uh, they don't is is the long and short of it like that's you know like they can't avoid fighting themselves if if they have talked themselves into jack johnson to such an extent that they cannot criticize him that they cannot you know and, and again this is not just a matter of of kind of pr to the media which i understand and that's kind of what i thought after the series when they threw schultz under the bus and kind of didn't said they liked the series that johnson had you know that's kind of pretty you know that's like pr 101 is you talk about the guy who you're obviously not bringing back as being negative and then you the guy who like you have to theoretically like sell to other teams as somebody that they want to take on you bump them up so I didn't really read into that comment what I am reading into are the kind of insider reports by kind of Penguins beat reporters uh, that really do seem to indicate that the Penguins uh, that Mike Sullivan and that Jim Rutherford legitimately do think that he was good this year and legitimately think that he was a good player in the playoffs. 
And if that is the case, like if they are that committed to him and they think that Justin Schultz was the entire problem, then like I really, it might seem like an exaggeration, but like I think the Penguins window is closed. Like if Jack Johnson is going to be a regular member of the Penguins lineup for the next year, two years, especially three years, like I don't think the team can seriously compete. That is how much of a negative impact that he has on the team when he's on the ice. That's how much of a, a horrific impact he has on Crosby and Malkin's ability to drive offense uh, or even defend. Uh, and it speaks to a broader issue of player identification uh, that the team seems to have. One thing that I'm kind of curious about is you mentioned that they threw Justin Schultz under the bus. Uh, and that's kind of a, a theme that's been keeping on coming up as kind of the insider behind the scenes reports have come out, you know, like Josh Yoey and, uh, uh, Rob Rossi have kind of been speaking to this as saying, you know, they've talked to people behind the scenes who say that Justin Schultz really earned the ire of the Penguins this year and in the play-in, which the thing that doesn't add up to me is that like Justin Schultz, they put him on the first power play unit for that entire series. Like they had him on with the extra attacker every single one of those games where they were trailing. So like, I, I really can't make the connection that they thought Schultz was like the worst player ever. And like, if they think that he was solely responsible for the, that pairing's fortunes, like they must think that he was like the worst player ever and yet continue to give him those minutes. Like they played him more than John Marino in game five or game four, I guess, you know, it really doesn't add up for me, but when it comes down to it, I mean, if they're going to keep convincing themselves that Jack Johnston is not only an NHL player, but like a good contributor for the Penguins, I just do not see how, this team can seriously recover and get to a higher point than they are right now, which sucks to say, but I mean, they've made this bid and they are determined to lie in it for as long as possible. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that there's that disconnect. A, a lot of times you'll see it where a coach is so painfully committed to this player that the underlying numbers don't, pay off and ultimately what the GM has to do to get the coach to stop playing like you saw it with Babcock all the time is you have to you have to take their toys away but if everyone yeah. thinks that the toys that the like the bad toys are good then it's unavoidable and you can understand as soon as they made the signing it was like oh my god like they've they've jumped the shark but you yeah. could understand the hubris because they they were able to take on reclamation projects like Justin Schultz. We talked about how they won a Stanley Cup with the top pairing of Ron Hainsey and Brian Dumoulin. Like you can understand where they would be like, yeah, no, we've, we've got the system. We've got the coaching where we can take on anyone who's got some physical tools and we're going to make a good defense out of it. And it's just, it's gotten way out of hand. Uh, how long does Mike Sullivan last? Because they, they just canned all the assistants. We've yeah. seen this happen with teams in the past. We saw it with Quenville in Chicago. Like, to me, it's just, I think Mike Sullivan's a fantastic coach. But it's, this is a, a half measure where if there's an issue, you got to rip off the Band-Aid. Because coaches, you take, you take away all their assistants, and they don't stick around much longer after that. Because it, it just means yeah. they're the next guy on the chopping block. Yeah. I, I, I agree with, with everything you said. I, first of all, I, like, I agree with you that Mike Sullivan is a great coach. Uh, I think he's, he's the best coach, certainly, that I've seen with the Penguins. I think he's one of the best coaches in the league. And I think if you had asked me on January 30th uh, who deserved the Jack Adams, I would have said Mike Sullivan running away. Like his, he plays a smart system. He's, he's good at 
you know, even if he's not much of an analytics guy himself, his eye test is, is generally, obviously, with Johnson being a massive exception, uh, his eye test, especially when it comes to forwards, is generally very attuned to the kinds of things that analytics tend to value. Like, he has been a guy who's kind of been a strong proponent of, for example, like, you know, Zach Aston Reese or, or Dominic Simone or guys who maybe ne don't necessarily put up huge points, but what they do in terms of driving play is super strong. And there's not a lot of coaches who would necessarily recognize that, but Sullivan's been strong with that. You know, he trusts young players. He plays a system that I think suits the Penguins very well. Uh, he is very good at motivating, motivating his players sometimes, like most of the time, I guess we'll say. Certainly not in the past two playoff rounds. But, I mean, if you watch the Penguins in, uh, in December, I mean, that team was ready to run through a wall for him. I mean, the issue is, like you said, somebody has to take the toys away. And it seems like no one's going to take the toys away. And if the toys aren't being taken away, then, you know, then Rutherford will not be pointing the finger at Jack Johnson. He'll be pointing the finger at Mike Sullivan, most likely. So I, I honestly, you know, I would say he is likely to go whenever the Penguins start dipping off. Like if, if the Penguins are, you know, halfway through next season, out of a playoff spot or like really struggling in the playoff race, you know, if there's really any risk that Rutherford feels like that Penguins first round pick is going to the lottery and it's going to the wild, then I feel like that's the time where he does the classic Penguins mid-season firing, you know, bring up the AHL coach and let's make a cup run gambit. But it really seems like these two are, are you know, intertwined. I, I feel like it's, it, you had kind of a similar thing going the last time around with uh, Ray Shiro and Dan Bilesma, where Shiro kind of staked his fate on Bilesma's and refused to fire him. You know, I'm not sure whether Rutherford would be that loyal in this circumstance, considering his, you know, his admirable uh, habit of like recognizing his mistakes oftentimes and trading them away right afterwards and not being particularly loyal. But uh yeah, I mean, the writing is on the wall for Sullivan. I don't know if he is going to recognize the right things he has to do to get himself out of the red, but, you know, I, I think he's got a limited shelf life if things start to turn sour. Well, and this division that they're in has eight teams that are all going to convince themselves that they're playoff teams going yeah. in. There's going to be there's going to be a surprise bottom feeder in that division, especially – if we go back to the normal playoff format where only five teams from an eight-team division can make it, there's a very good chance they won't be one of them, even though you look up and down the roster and you're like, oh, my God, like this is a cup contender, not a bottom feeder. But it, these things happen where there's just – there's a disconnect. Um, what do you do in goal? I, I think you got to go Jari. And I don't say that with a huge amount of confidence. I'm not, you know, going to – you know, put a picture of him in the all-star game and say the Penguins are about to get excellent goaltending for the next 10 years. Uh, I think that his, he, he's gotten a little overrated for a insane hot streak that he had in December uh, that he tailed off from and then was kind of merely okay for the rest of the year. But I, I really, I just can't see them giving Murray another go, especially after the playoffs, you know, he loses his net in the playoffs after losing his net earlier in the fall. I mean, 
statistically speaking, Murray was the worst starter in the NHL this year. Uh, and that's, that's obviously with, with Dubnik and, uh, and Howard playing kind of backup roles. Uh, but still, like, regardless, you know, by any measure, Murray was terrible this year. Uh, and Murray was pretty good the year before that, and then terrible the year before that, and then excellent the year before that. Like, he just can't – he's not reliable in any sense. And, uh, you know, as much as I have a soft spot for him and I feel like he'll eventually work things out, I just – the Penguins just don't have the cap flexibility to kick this town down the road again. They, they have a cap crunch. Both goalies are RFAs. It sounds like the mood inside the front office is that they're going to go with, uh, with Jari, which means that, you know, Murray becomes a pretty enticing trade asset, I would imagine. I feel like teams like maybe the Senators or the Red Wings – who are kind of looking for like a young franchise goalie who's not going to cost them very much. Uh, we'll probably jump at that. And, and in an ideal situation, they'd be able to attach Jack Johnson to him. But I feel like that's probably not going to be something that pans out. But in the meantime, that becomes like one of the few real kind of tradable major assets that they have. And uh, Tristan Jari takes the net. And I mean, who knows what happens from there? Like Jesse Marshall said it the other day, like we don't know – it, almost anything about Tristan Jari. Like we don't have like a huge sample to look at. We really don't know like what his strengths and weaknesses are, how he's going to perform in like an extended playoff run or any of that. But we do know about Matt Murray. And unfortunately what we know about Matt Murray is that he's not someone that you could really rely on from a year to year basis. And the Penguins can't really afford to mess around with that anymore. And they can't afford to figure things out next year. So that's just how things work out. Yeah, the tough thing with trading Murray is that we see every year that the goalie trade market, it just never seems to materialize. It seems like every year teams kind of figure out their way to two goaltenders that they like and to the point where Casey DeSmith can just roll through waivers unclaimed at the start of the season, which was kind of shocking. Yeah. I think with Murray, at least he's got the two cup rings. Like I think any team, a team that's willing to convince itself that Mike Smith should be their starter in the playoffs could also convince themselves that Matt Murray is a good bet to uh, figure things out with their team. And I think that the combination of that, as well as his lack of a price tag, like I don't think that they're going to get like a first for him, but I think that they're going to get something for him. And that's a hell of a lot better than nothing. And I think that that's probably the best they can hope for considering the cap crunch that they're, uh, that they're potentially facing. So you just slagged the Oilers for uh, the, maybe the third time on this podcast. So uh, that's my team, um, begrudgingly. Uh, how about we dig into the Oilers? Is their window open or closed? Uh, I mean, it's open as long as McDavid's there. They could certainly do a better job of, of prying it open a little bit more. But, I mean, they're, you know, theoretically, they should be competitive as long as, uh, as, long as he's in his prime. So... I'd say it's it's tentatively open. They just have to figure out a way to wriggle themselves through it. This short playoff run, it exposed a lot of weaknesses in the team's game, but their their big guns performed. So as long as you've got McDavid and Dreisaitl as top 10 players, you can fall ass backwards into the right mix of talent enough to win, but doing it year after year, um, is easier said than done, especially when they've they've done so much self-inflicted damage over the years. I wonder though, with McDavid and Dreisaitl, did they still t- expose too much defensively 
to really drive this team to genuine contender status? Uh, so I, I definitely think they if they explode they expose a lot defensively. Like that's always been kind of something that that certain Oilers fans have raked me over the coals for uh, for saying. Uh, I actually contributed a uh, uh, a chapter to uh, to Jack Hans next book, kind of specifically about the topic of like David and Drysaddle's defense. And there, I mean, there's really no doubt about it that both players are extremely poor defensively. You know, near the bottom of the league in the past three years. Uh, you know, McDavid was, I think, arguably like a bottom five defensive player this year. Uh, Drysaddle is a little bit better when he's not with McDavid. I think that maybe playing with McDavid brings out his worst habits because they're playing such a run-and-gun game that I think it's easy for Drysaddle to get kind of wrapped up in that and uh, and forgo his defensive responsibilities a bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like the, the fact of the matter is that, like, yes, are they are they bad defensive players? Like, from a results standpoint, yes, they are. Is that the reason that the Edmonton Oilers are not a contender? No. Is that the reason that the Edmonton Oilers lost the Chicago Blackhawks? No. So I think when it really comes down to it, like, their defensive play, like, it would be good for them to be better defensively because, like, of course it would be. You know, that's, like, that goes without saying. Like, would it be better if Jujar Cairo was a top offensive player? Yes. Like, that's, you know. That's just how it works. But at the same time, the tendency to point the fingers at the star players whenever things go wrong is not the right tendency to have. And I think that the mcdavid Drysidle defensive conversation is more a conversation that we should have when we're talking about the Hart Trophy and not one that we should have when we're talking about, like, the Oilers getting their crap together and becoming a proper contender. Okay, because like I asked the question because I find myself leaning more towards the angle of not wanting to point blame at the best guys because Edmonton has long had this history of doing that and, and running talented players out, yeah, and agreed. you don't want to be that. But at the same time, it's like you see this clear deficiency, and it's like, hey, if you want to be the best in the world, and these guys claim claim to be that they are. And certainly I've, I've said that McDavid's the best player in the world. We'll maybe yep. clean that part of your game up and lead by example a little bit more. Not that I think that he's a bad leader because like certainly he, he no, no one works harder than these guys do and no one um, yeah. generates something out of nothing more than these guys do. So yeah, I, I think they're phenomenal. I just wonder if there shouldn't be a, a little bit better balance to their game. And I wonder if that would lead more towards winning a cup. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you on both counts that, that, you know, if they became better defensively, it would definitely benefit the team. And it's something that I think that they can individually work on or the coaches can try to work on with them. Uh, and I, you know, same thing with the Jets, you know, that's something that Shifley and Connor and, and them should also be working on. But at the same time, like if you're talking about the Oilers and you're trying to point your fingers at why they're not a competitive team, like in my mind, McDavid and Dreisaitl not being good defensively is like a pretty far down the list that I would type up, especially when it comes to that, uh, to that Blackhawks series. So... If those guys are going to be the type of players where there is, there's going to be action at both ends, they need to have the best goaltending, and they clearly don't have that. So how do they fix the goaltending on a shoestring budget? So I, I you know, based on what I can tell, just just purely in terms of their the stats, 
you know, I feel like Koskinen was was fine this year. Like he was not, you know, he certainly wasn't one of the best goalies in the league. Uh, you know, he wasn't what you'd ideally like want to have like on a brilliant team with a superstar goalie. But like I feel like he got the job done more compared to like what was expected of him. Uh, a lot better than he did last year. Uh, Mike Smith just wasn't that. Like he 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 was great on the penalty kill. Uh, like his, his penalty kill numbers were like shockingly elite, uh, but at even strength, he just wasn't that great. And then uh, in the playoffs, obviously he uh, fell flat on his face. And, and, you know, if, if that's kind of, if he goes to UFA this year and doesn't get a contract and retires, it's kind of too bad because, you know, this is a guy who legitimately did put up like in 2012 with the coyotes, like the best playoffs of the analytics era in terms of his, his performance above expected. Uh, but I, I, apart from that, I mean, the Oilers' job this summer in terms of their goaltending is pretty much going to be to bring either a backup or like a 1B kind of guy who they can tandem with uh, Koskinen, from what I can tell. And there's a lot of options out there, and I think that uh, they just kind of need to be smart about picking a guy who has the opportunity to be good or has a track record of being pretty good as opposed to a guy who seems to be consistently bad or has been rapidly declining or, or what have you like uh, like I think Smith had so you know I, I, I again like I think that like you can have teams that succeed that have players who play kind of a high octane you know no holds barred style who don't need to have like the best goaltending ever if the rest of their lineup is getting the job done uh, but you still would ideally want to have a better goaltending tandem than the, the Oilers had this year for sure. Yeah, if there's a silver lining to the play-in loss, it's that Smith cannot come back. And if there's a silver lining to the fact that the Oilers don't have any cap space to go out and spend, it's that they cannot overpay uh, Braden Holtby type. Right. So yeah. there's potential here to avoid some self-harm. And I think Koskinen, he, it's a little bit rich, his contract for a tandem goalie, but he's perfectly yeah. fine as a tandem goalie. You just, you can't use him too much because we saw what happens there uh, when Hitchcock just rode him into the ground and he completely fell apart. So uh, as long as he's not playing too much, he's perfectly fine. Uh, I kind of like Thomas Grice as a tandem option, but he was also terrible during the Doug Waite firewagon hockey season. So yeah. I, I'm wary of him entering the Oilers' circumstances where they, they'd be more towards that fire wagon type than, than not. Yeah. The, real, the real question with Grice going on on that play, because I, I think you're right, is whether or not what you're getting from Grice is, is a guy who's going to fall apart when he comes out of a system, uh, or whether you think that playing with, with Mitch Korn as his goalie coach improved like his fundamental play as a goalie like if, if it, are you getting like a Robin Leonard situation like is he going to jump from the Islanders to I mean like the Blackhawks were the worst defensive team in the league this year like and Leonard did perfectly fine there so maybe you could talk yourself into saying okay Grice is obviously not going to play for a great defensive team in Edmonton but at the same time maybe you know with the Oilers he'll be able to like use some of what he learned with, with corn and put it together or something like that. You know, I don't know. It, I mean, again, I, I always draw myself into talking about goalies. Uh, like there's like some kind of science behind it. And I just have to remind myself that Eunice Corpusalo had a nine seventy five save percentage in the first round and talk myself out of it. 
Yeah, I think that when you get to like a larger sample size of what you, you would see in a normal regular season, that there most goaltenders are, are very context-based. It's, you know, what's the structure of the team's defensive concepts relative to the skills of the goaltender and how does that all fit together? Whereas you, there are some goalies like Robin Lehner who just are so talented that context free they're going to be competent um and i think that grace probably leans closer to one of those guys who the specific context has to be established there has to be like a very rigid structured system he knows where the shots are going to be coming from he knows that he can commit to the strong side shot because the backside is going to be locked down whereas in vegas they rely on their goaltender being way more athletic. So they give up a little bit more on the backside because they're constantly pressuring the strong side. And so it's just, it depends on what the strengths and weaknesses of the goaltender are to their context. And I don't think that Grice necessarily fits their context, but I don't know that there is one that's, that's really going to succeed because the Oilers don't have a good defensive structure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, Pick a name out of a hat as long as it's not too expensive and be prepared to, to move on from them quickly if it, if it doesn't work out because otherwise you could be uh, you could end up with a Mike Smith situation where you're talking yourself into playing a backup uh, in the playoffs. And, yeah, we all know how that went. But I think you're right about it being a good thing that they're not in a position to give uh, Holtby a pile of money. Yeah, because that's just going to go awfully. And I don't think Holtby's as bad as maybe his numbers have indicated the past couple of years. I think that just shows you how how much degradation there's been in the Washington Capitals uh, defensive play. Um, the Oilers, though, uh, what do you do regarding the the conundrum that is Andreas Athanasiou's uh, contract situation? He's an RFA. He needs $3 million qualifying offer. Plus, he can go the arbitration route and as we indicated they've got no cap space for him uh, do you just let him walk and treat the two seconds as sunk cost or do you try to trade him before this stuff comes up and maybe you get one pick back and kind of save face so like I, I will say it like I thought trading for Athenasiou was a mistake like I, I am not a fan of Athenasiou I think that he is a he's absolutely like a zero calorie scorer and he's not even that reliable a scorer. Like he, he's kind of everything that would bring out the worst habits in whichever player he was going to play with. Like when he was kind of penciled in as, as the, the McDavid winger who was supposed to like keep up with him speed wise and everything, you know, Athanasiu is, is horrible defensively. And I kind of, as soon as I saw that, I was thinking, okay, they're just going to double down. Like the McDavid line is just never going to back check at all. Like it's just going to be, fire wagon hockey both ways and I wouldn't want to pay him three million bucks on you know in the same way that I didn't want to or that I wouldn't want to have acquired him in the first place I, I think if you can recover some picks I'm sure that there are teams that would be at least somewhat interested in paying you know a little less for FNSU but still something I'm sure you could get like a third round pick or prospect or something like that and uh, I would do that in that case as opposed to just letting him walk but you know, I think the Oilers are kind of obviously it's a it's a sunk cost, but I think the Oilers might actually be like you know fate might be helping out the Oilers here by not allowing them to 
commit dollars and, and term to a guy in Athens who I really think got got extremely overrated after a 30 goal season and uh, has really shown no reason to think that he's uh, a top six caliber hockey player. I got to tell you the, the tools on him are tantalizing though. Like he's, he's way bigger than I thought that he was going to be for the type of guy and reputation that he had. And he was ever so close to getting that, depth goal that the Oilers were desperate for in that play-in series that that could have changed their fate for them and ultimately he hits a crossbar and they lose game four these things happen but I I just you know I I wish that maybe they hadn't given up quite so much for him and it does seem like this is Ken Holland's guy like he wants to make it work with him my notes are if you can get him to sign for like two years at two million to prove it yeah. And if that's not there, then you trade him for a third and start over. That that's the rational view, but I just don't I don't know if Ken Holland can be rational with this player. Yeah, I think I mean I that would definitely be the best option. I guess the the question would be if, if Athanasia would accept that or just rather take his arbitration winning and go home and trust that he's gonna score more goals next year. But yeah, no, I, I you know. I, I wasn't a fan of Athanasiu going into the year. Wasn't a fan of him going into the trade deadline. And uh, yeah, I think mean two, 2.2 is kind of a let's see if you can put it together contract. I think would be perfectly fine. But, you know, considering his, his skill set and, and, you know, his his hockey DB page from last year uh, with all the goals, you know, I'm sure he's pretty confident that he can get a decent amount of money somewhere. So he'll he'll probably try to do that as much as possible. For sure. Uh, how about Puyu Yarvi? Is there any type of realistic return that the Oilers can expect? Like, I, I think about how Jonathan Drouet, he made a trade request, but at least he was still playing in the NHL. So Iserman was able to play chicken and ultimately he gets Mikhail Sergachev in return for Drew Ann. And I think that's kind of the high watermark for the Oilers, but Puyarvi yeah. refuses to play ball. He, he won't sign with them. He won't come back. He's not going to do it until he gets traded. It sure seems like. So like, did you just take a third rounder and pack it in? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the flat cap might be a benefit there because there will be teams that are really, really looking for kind of a cheap, potentially major impact player. Uh, you know, like we could, you know, maybe even like a team like the Panthers might be a team that would uh, would really like to take a chance on him, especially considering that they have some departing UFAs. And as has been pretty extensively covered, like their minor league system just doesn't develop anybody. So they like to acquire guys who have already been developed for them. And they might see Poliarvi as an example of that. So, you know, I, like the Oilers are not in an enviable position. Uh, I think that, you know, I mean, the Canadians massively overpaid for Drouin and he has, you know, been a, a pretty huge disappointment ever since, regardless of what uh, French media and fans might try to talk themselves into. Uh, like I thought I saw a quote somewhere where he said like, never say never in terms of coming back to the Oilers or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, he said that before the bubble and then he wouldn't sign with them. Like it sounded like the Oilers were like, no, we're, we're going to get him signed. And then he, he's been more lukewarm 
uh, towards right. actually signing with them. So it, it really doesn't feel like he's he's going to be willing to sign with them. And it's the irony is that the Oilers are the exact team that needs a, a talent okay. who could they could fit into their bottom six uh, on a cheap deal and get a lot out of him. And he scored at a top line rate when he was with McDavid. Everyone scores at a top line rate when they're with McDavid. But it's just like right. you can either lose the asset or just put the guy there and, and make it work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, he, it seems like he had a really good year in Finland. If, if he did that and he's telling the Oilers that he still refuses to come over, then I think you just pretty much have to trade him for whatever you can get. Because if he was really good in Finland and this is the biggest, and he's, you know, he's obviously not getting any younger. I feel like this is the best his value is ever going to be. If he's really serious about not going back to Edmonton and you pretty much have to trade whatever you, uh, whatever you can get for him, unfortunately. Yeah, and the thing that sucks is just they're, the Seattle expansion draft is looming. So if they don't trade him, they're going to lose him to Seattle in the expansion draft. And any team that's trading for him has to think of him as we're protecting this guy or they're not going to give up any real assets. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there are teams that are going to be protecting garbage in the expansion draft no matter what. So it might not be the end of the world for them to uh, to have somebody to, to protect. I mean, like if you look at some teams, like the guys that they are projected to protect from their forward groups and you're talking like AHL caliber players. So I guess those would be the first, that would be the first uh, set of teams that you would want to target for that. Interesting. Uh, so the Chicago Blackhawks, they beat the Oilers. Uh, does this mean that their window is back open or is it still closed? Uh, no, I think pretty, pretty safely. No, uh, but they like, they have potential. They could put things together. Like they have the young players in place there. Like, you know, doc is impressive. Debrinkat's obviously good. Dylan Strom, depending on what they do with him this summer is, uh, is a solid player. Uh, Bockfist had, uh, had very nice numbers in the, uh, the regular season offensively, uh, uh, terrible defensively, but, uh, you know, what can you really expect from like a 19 year old offensive defenseman? Uh, you know, they, they have pieces there. Like, they, they are building something that could end up being a serious cup contender down the line. But, I mean, the team was just a mess defensively this year. Like, I, I wasn't exaggerating when I said they were the worst defensive team of the year – or worst defensive team in the league this year. Uh, they got bowled over by the Oilers in terms of underlying numbers. Uh, Crawford bailed them out as the series went along, especially in the last game. You know, they got lucky that the Oilers got some pretty crummy goaltending uh, in the first – obviously the first game, but uh, first couple of games as well. You know, I think that they're a pretender. I think Vegas is kind of blowing them up right now, uh, as, as you would expect. Um, yeah, not too optimistic on, on kind of the Caves, Kane, Keith era as reaping any more Stanley Cups. But, you know, they are building things right. And theoretically, they could be a team that, if all of those young pieces kind of click at the same time, could theoretically – maybe pop up as a bit of a surprise in the next couple of years and, uh, and take a big leap. So thinking about that philosophically, I'm on the side of good karma. So anytime you're in the playoff mix, you, you've got a chance, you go for it. But for this clearly flawed Chicago team, was it more important for them to get these young guys playoff reps and for them to learn not to be losers? Or would it have been better for them to lose, get a top 10 pick with the chance of moving up to number one, and then maybe you stack 
these entry-level contracts together with Bookfist, Doc, and whomever they would have drafted in the top 10. Like, I think, I think at 17, they'll still get a good player, but it's not like that player's going to be arriving next season and they could, you know, stack all those talents together and suddenly it's like, oh, watch out for these guys. Yeah, you know, I, I think you, you kind of have to go into the locker room and, and have kind of a sense of the temperature to, to really figure out exactly how, they, how they've benefited from getting the playoff reps in. But, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of a, a proponent, like if, unless you're like one of like the truly dire teams, like unless you're like the Red Wings or the, uh, or the Senators or the Kings, like I, I generally think that you should be trying to compete. Like, not, you know, that doesn't mean, like, going all in. But, like, you know, at least trying to win games and not have your team, like, completely collapse. Like, even if you're doing it with an eye to the future and an eye to what you're building, I do think that, that you know, from what I can tell, it is beneficial to have, like, a culture of competitiveness as opposed to kind of year after year tanking uh, or you know, year after year, just endless rebuilding, and then what you end up with at the end of it. Because I mean, you know, Dylan Strom's contract's up. Debrinkat is uh, is I think he's been signed to his RFA deal. You know, obviously Bogdanovich has a couple extra years, but uh, you know, and then so does Doc. But I think when it really comes down to it, it, the the Blackhawks are probably better off having these young guys being like playing in like a theoretically like we are trying to win a championship environment rather than a, yeah, you know, whatever, we'll just, like, play, you know, Anton Forsberg in net and just see what happens situation. So so you I, mentioned I, the goaltending. Um, yeah. Do they bring Corey Crawford back in, in order to kind of keep that competitiveness going? Uh, I mean, like, Crawford was really good this year. Like, they would be – if they want to keep up the, you know, competitiveness thing – and you know, I mean, the Blackhawks had never shied away from being loyal to their uh, to their Cup champion players. Then bringing back Crawford wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Uh, you know, in, in terms of like the UFA goalies, like if you're looking at a guy who like was actually good this year, Crawford is pretty much at the top of the list. Which means that you know, a team like the Oilers or somebody else who's looking for like a tandem goalie would be, you know, well served by taking a serious look at him. Uh, I'm not too familiar with the Blackhawks cap situation, uh, but I feel like they probably have the flexibility to give him a decent amount of money on a one-year deal just to kind of stick around, uh, you know, for both the loyal, you know, it's kind of a no-lose situation because if he repeats his performance from this year, which I feel like is probably like his high watermark, like as about as high as you could really expect from next year, then they get to run it back and make another playoff run and, and see what happens. Uh, and if he doesn't, then, you know, like you said, they get to be like a competitive team from a skater perspective and then not make the playoffs and get a decent pick. So I feel like they're kind of a team that can reasonably be happy with whatever the outcome is next year. So here's the Blackhawks cap situation. They've got $8 million. Uh, they have to take care of RFAs Strom, Kubalik, and Kukuk. They can create $2 million more with the most obvious buyout of Zach Smith. Um, I was kind of thinking of a similar to the Pecorini uh, extension that was signed with Nashville, a two-year, five million AAV. Maybe they can even take advantage of the fact that Crawford's over 35, so they could give him a bonus-laden deal, uh, something along those lines, so that 
it, it wouldn't necessarily all pile onto this year's cap if uh, if he didn't hit some certain benchmarks or if he did then he makes even more money for them they've got another interesting thing that they could do uh, with Ole Mata he was pretty good for them in the playoffs but overall he hasn't always been that great I, as a Penguins fan I'm sure you have a lot of track record with him because he isn't 26 yet, they can do the the one-third buyout instead of the typical two-thirds. So a buyout lands him on the cap as a tax of only 0.7 million instead of him being on the cap for 4 million for the next two years. Yeah, that might be a good... I mean, I, I will say I'm, I'm a little bit fonder of Olimata than most people are. Uh, I think he's one of those guys who has obvious physical limitations when it comes to skating which I think in some people's eyes especially Penguins fans can kind of overwhelm their better judgment of the stuff that he is good at uh and I think that he's probably he's one of their better defensemen and certainly at least like probably one of their top two uh defensive defensemen which you know you could say that the worst thing that the Blackhawks could do is is take a good defensive defenseman away from the worst defensive team in the league but at the same time, if they are kind of in that level of cap crunch, then I, I guess that would be uh, that would be definitely something that they should look at. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, as long as they get those young guys signed, I feel like anything that happens around that is is pretty much gravy. Uh, you know, I, I think it would be in their best interest to try to give Crawford another go, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that he would probably be happy to uh, to retire a Blackhawk and kind of keep that core together, but. I, you know, I, I really like this team's not going to have super incredible flexibility until, you know, Taves and Kane are no longer taking up gigantic parts of their cap, which is going to be a long time from now. So they kind of have to be measured in terms of how, you know, ambitious they want to be in terms of seriously trying to compete, which obviously sucks considering the amount of young talent they have, but there really isn't much that can be done about that. Uh, Nashville Predators, is their window open or closed? Uh, I mean, smart money is on closed, uh, which is kind of alarming to say, considering that, like the Jets, they were supposed to be this ultra-competitive team. And they have they have pieces, but they also have some real bad pieces that I think counteract some of the, the benefits of, of their great pieces. Yeah, and it sure seems like David Poyle, he's getting up in years and his recent moves have this stink of desperation. I wonder if like the biggest thing that the Predators could do is moving him into the president's office and just, you don't, you don't touch player decisions anymore. As fantastic as he's been, his track record is almost unimpeachable. He's the only GM that they've ever had. He's been fantastic. He's done everything but win a cup. Um, but he's he's desperate for that cup, and I wonder if he, he's he's doing more self-inflicted harm than anything else. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the real the real killer for the for the Predators and kind of I mean, really the thing that just at its core is is destroying that team's competitiveness uh, is the the duo down the middle of Ryan Johansson and Kyle Turris. Like that is where every problem with this Predators team kind of emanates from those two players. Just because of the the, like, I mean, these are two guys who account for fourteen million dollars of their cap. You know, they're they're two of their top three centers, and both of them are roughly replacement level players now. As as odd as that sounds, and I mean, Johansson just, you know, in probably because of his reputation, because of his 
cap hit is a guy who they are going to keep playing in like a top line role uh, probably until that contract is over. Uh, and, and he just isn't that caliber of player. I, I, in my opinion, he kind of topped out as like a good second line center uh, a couple of years ago. I think that's what he kind of was when they acquired him from the, from the jackets. And I think that that was kind of the peak that he hit and they gave him that first line center money because like you said, like they, they've always wanted that first line center and they, paid for one they didn't get one then they acquired Kyle Turris to be like that second line center they paid him like a second line center and they didn't get one he's a replacement level player um you know the good news for them honestly is that is that Matthew Shane was pretty good this year like his, his underlying numbers stayed strong you know they weren't as as gaudy as they were in Ottawa last year but uh like he they paid him what like eight and a half million or eight million dollars or something like that and he he played like an 8.5 million dollar player so they really like they can't really complain about that. I'm sure that contract is not going to age particularly well. But you know, I mean, this is a team that like they had incredible like they had two of the best defensemen in the league in, in Alice and Yossi. They had a strong starting goalie in UC Saros. They had uh, maybe the best third line in the NHL in Benino, Smith, and Grimaldi. I mean, their their underlying numbers were like ridiculously good and even their like their goal numbers were also exceptional um i mean they're they're a team that has some tough decisions coming in terms of guys who are coming off their cap as ufas like i I would expect they're probably going to lose uh michael grandland uh craig smith is another guy who it wouldn't surprise me to see go elsewhere and that's when i think things could really start to crumble for this team because that depth has been kind of all that's been keeping them going the past couple of years and if if that happens and they aren't able to replace them properly then theoretically you could see the bottom kind of fall out of the team but which would be a shame considering how much uh, star power they have you mentioned uh, Johansson really really falling apart the Jofa line was dominant against the Coyotes was that just kind of an aberration was that mostly just we finally have Arvidsson healthy again, or what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I admittedly didn't catch a, a super large amount of uh, of that series. Um, I mean, I, w- I would say that that so that so this was uh, uh, Johansson, Forsberg, and Arvidsson, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Forsberg's a guy whose whose numbers kind of took a hit, a decent size hit this season. Arvidsson took a huge hit this year. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me greatly if they all kind of benefited from a reunion and, and got things back together. And and if they can kind of carry that through to next season, then that would obviously be great news for the, uh, for the Predators, because I think that was a big part of their decline this year was not getting that superstar performance from, uh, from Philip Horsberg, not getting that reliable scoring from Arvidsson and then obviously getting replacement level play from Johansson. So if that's just a matter of line nominations, then that's great news for them. And uh, that's, I mean, you know, presumably this team's going to be trying to compete next year. So they might have to hang their hat on that and uh, just trust that it's going to stay that way throughout the year. And you mentioned they're probably going to lose Craig Smith and Mikhail Granlund, who he just didn't work out at all for them. So they basically have to rebuild an entire second line with with very little cap space and very little in the system. But they, they do seem like they could be able to find some dollars 
to, to overpay Mike Hoffman in free agency as the, as the type oh, yeah. of just a shot kind of guy that they could build their power play around because their power play yep. has been terrible. I think that they would look for anything to fix that thing. And I just, I wonder if Duchesne and Turris would have anything to say about uh, him from their time in Ottawa, where he was kind of a pariah by the end of it that would stop that from happening. Or if, if David Poyle is just destined to, to overpay this guy. I was, I was going to say like, until you said the Ottawa thing, although I will stay with it, I feel like, I feel like Hoffman and Nashville is a, is a very solid prediction. Well, we can file that away with, uh, with my Pugliarvi to Florida prediction in terms of uh, seeing if, if we get anything right. But uh, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I could see him doing it. Uh, can I throw a notion out at you? I think Kyle Turris is almost certainly gone and it's almost certainly going to be a buyout, which is going to be ridiculous, but um, you end up basically with a $2 million tax bill on your cap for the next eight years. Uh, yeah. But there, there are worse buyouts in NHL history. But I wonder if they wouldn't take a $3 million tax for the next four years and see if a team would be interested in tourists at 50% of the retained salary. Yeah, I mean, I, in, in theory, I mean, like, like I, I don't know enough about the, the Predators' like, financial situation or like what Poyle is thinking. Because, I mean, if, if Poyle is thinking short-term, then... I could see that he would uh, he would go the buyout route because it would obviously burn wh- whichever GM is coming after him. But uh, you know, I mean, man, three. Ha- have we seen kind of uh, uh, salary retention like up in that three million range over uh, over four years? I can't think of any off the top of my head that have been because obviously there was like the Kessel one point eight, which was uh, or one point two, which was for you know six years or something like that. But in terms of just the dollar amount being that high, I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember like a multi-year uh yeah i don't think we've seen one yeah i honestly it would not surprise me if they just curse themselves to uh be stuck with with kyle turris and every year we just have to read about how uh the coaching staff is like getting to kyle turris in a in a new way and finding out we, how to get him going again and we have to hear about how david poyle is shopping him around and no one's answering i mean did the you we just watched Milan Lucic get traded. So conceivably, if they take on someone else's problem, there could be a trade there. But I, I just think that that would be one of the very creative ways to actually get out of having a huge anchor on your cap books. Yeah, yeah. I know it would pretty much have to be like a cap dump for cap dump situation for them to uh, basically be able to move them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more if this team they're going to be going for it but I feel like they should probably take a step back for a year or two and kind of reboot it um, would they consider trading Eckholm because he's only got two years left at a very appetizing cap number and we talked about how defensive defensemen are so valued when we were talking about Jonas Brodeen well this guy's got two years instead of the one year so you could get a bounty for him and I mean, Yossi and Ellis, they're locked in for life, but I, I don't know how you commit to a third defenseman when he's going to be 32 in free agency and going to be asking for a similar number as Ellis. Yeah, I, I think I think Eckholm's time is, is, you know, is ticking in terms of how long he's going to be a predator. He definitely seems like a huge candidate for like a Strawman-esque uh, contract. And I mean, he's a guy, you know, like we talked about Brodeen as being a player who is the best defensive defenseman in the NHL. 
you know, Ekholm has that reputation, but his numbers don't necessarily back it up in the past two years or so. Like he's he's still like a very solid defenseman, but he's not. Uh, he's actually kind of been. He's kind of in that weird like Brian uh, Dumoulin mold where he he profiles more as like a defensive defenseman in terms of like what his skill set is, but his on ice impact kind of leans more towards driving offense just because like maybe he's an effective breakout passer or there like kind of subtle things that he's doing that are that are contributing to offense. Uh, I mean, you know, if you could get like a lot for him, then that makes sense. And especially if you're confident that uh, Dante Fabro can can prop up a second pairing for you, which is, uh, I think, no guarantee, but I guess that's something that they'll, uh, if they have a lot of confidence in him, that they'd be potentially willing to do. Uh, my concern for the Predators would be, firstly, that, I mean, Ellis and the OC aren't getting any better. And if they take a year off or two years off or something like that, they could potentially be kind of squandering the primes of, you know, their two best players, two like two potentially top five defensemen in the league, on top of you know like your Philip Forsberg's, like he's going to be falling out of his prime, like you know like that could be potentially a dangerous situation to end up in, in the service of a season where you like maybe with the draft lottery the way it is like win like the ninth overall pick or the eleventh overall pick or something and end up with a player who isn't a big impact guy. Um, yeah, I you know. Another thing is that uh, Poyle has been very bad at filling out the depth of his blue line, uh, especially in the past couple of years. Like he's really identified these guys like Corbinian Holzer and Yannick Weber and Matt Irwin, who just have not gotten the job done. And like that bottom pair has like always gotten caved in, like no matter who it was. And, you know, it's again, like they're always cheap defensemen, but theoretically, like we're talking about, you know, like you can get good cheap defensemen. He just hasn't been able to do that. So if he's a guy, like if he feels the need to fill that fourth defenseman spot, there's like every chance that he could fill it with like a guy who's just not prepared to do that. And that could theoretically set the Predators back too. So if they really feel like packing it in, then theoretically he'd be a guy that they could move. But otherwise I feel like at least they should give it another go next year. And if things don't work out, then uh, then they could probably get a decent uh, bounty for them either the deadline or in the offseason next year. Yeah, you're probably right, and I wonder if they wouldn't consider trading their first rounder to try to push the chips in for one last go around. Uh, with this team, maybe they attach that first rounder to Kyle Turris, and that gets them uh, more more out of that bad money. Um, last one, New York Rangers. Is their window open or closed? Oh, it's wide open. It's wide open. I, I, I mean, I don't think they're going to be a huge contender next year, but they're uh, they're in a nice position. Yeah, I'm with you. They've got foundational pieces at every single level, and they're adding the number one pick in Alexi Lafreniere to Panarin Zibanejad combo up front. They've got a number one defenseman in Adam Fox. Uh, you know, he was a rookie, but he was he was pretty damn good. And yep. they've got uh, the heir apparent in goal in Igor Shesterkin. So, I mean, they've got pieces at every single level. I think it's it's just starting to crack open for them. Yeah, yeah. Really, the only well, I guess the the two only things for the Rangers that would concern me because, like, I I, I totally agree with you that they have, you know, they have the guys who are good now, and, and Panarin is advantage at, and and to a lesser extent, Kreider. They have a guy who, you know, like I I agree with you that like Adam Fox was 
like exceptional this year. Like he was my Calder Trophy winner running away. Uh, he he only got better as they increased his role. He ended up leading them in five on five time on ice in the playoffs. So I really think that they're ready to trust him as the number one guy. Uh, finally, uh, so I I think that they're in a great position on the blue line. They have those prospects coming up. You know, Anthony D'Angelo, whatever you think about his uh, personality or social media presence, uh, is he's he's a great offensive defenseman. If they decide to retain him, uh, the real issues for them just come from the second line center spot or the first line center spot, depending on which unit you want Panarin to play on, uh, and the $8 million Trouba contract, because that one is, is a tough one. Uh, the, the center spot, first of all, they have Ryan Strom playing there now. He's a UFA. He is projected to get a lot of money. Uh, I think the evolving wild like contract projection formula, which has been like 98% accurate in the past, projects them at like $7 million on a long-term deal, which I think is probably not going to happen. But I don't think it's it's out of the question that he's going to get long-term money above $5 bucks, which would be paying way too much for a season where he was bumped up by Panarin and, and a high on-ice shooting percentage. Uh, so that's an issue. They have to fill that second-line center spot. And unless they're planning on forcing Lafreniere to play there, that could be an issue. And then, uh, yeah, with Jacob Truba, I mean, that's a, he was he was a below-replacement-level defenseman this year, and he makes $8 million. So if uh, they, they need to figure out what the hell's going on with him and, and sort him out, otherwise uh, things are going to be looking real bad for them in terms of dealing with the cat implications of that right at the time that they're going to be trying to build a team that serious to contend for a cup. Yeah, with Strom, I think that even giving him like a, a what Peugeot got from the Islanders would probably be too much. But uh, like that would that would be kind of my high water mark for them. But yeah, I, I've seen those models as well, and it's like, yeah, I, I kind of get why that would happen. Right shot centerman, it's hard to find, and like Strom's a fine player. It just that's 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 too much to pay. Um, in, in terms of Truba, I do wonder if like it seems like they had no good left shot defenseman at all this year I wonder if just finding him a better pair like this is a guy who he came off of years of playing with Josh Morrissey who's a perfectly fine defenseman maybe the only perfectly fine defenseman in Winnipeg and then he goes to whatever they had uh, this year like I think was he playing mostly with Mark Stahl I think Brendan Smith was his uh, was his main guy oh even better uh, yeah yeah I mean so that, that is true and that is fair and I think that Assuming that, again, that they can do what the Penguins need to do with Jack Johnston and take the toys away, that uh, he should be playing with somebody a little better next year. The thing that concerns me a little bit about him is that his numbers were kind of on a downward swing his last couple of years in Winnipeg, uh, which is not a super great sign. But, I mean, he still has good physical tools. And they really, again, with Fox emerging like he has, they really only need him to be a good top four defenseman. So. I feel like if they can moderate his minutes a little bit and uh, maybe be a little bit more realistic about putting him with a strong uh, line mate, then theoretically that would take the $8 million contract from catastrophe to 3 or $4 million overpay. Speaking of those guys that he was playing with, do you buy those out just to get them off the roster or do you just take one more year uh, kind of in cap purgatory because this is the big year of Shattenkirk's buyout. He's worth $6 million 
uh, as a tax on the cap and then he's only like 1 million the next handful of years and I think they've got another buyout on the books so they've got over 7 million in buyouts and they've got these huge expiring deals to the point where they've got 24 million shaking loose from the cap uh, come next summer so you just ride it out with them and just kind of I don't know hope that the the team is rational enough to throw them on Roby Daw Island or do you just have to buy them out to take the toys away yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a real tough one because like you need to get Mark Stahl out of the lineup in the same way that you need to get Johnson out of the lineup. Um, hopefully the coach or the the GM has enough sway there that he can get that moving a little bit, even if he doesn't necessarily buy them out. Um, I think Smith is is obviously not good, but like Stahl is like the real problem, and so like like he's who they should have bought out instead of uh, Chad and Kirk last uh, last off season. But you know if they're if they're stuck how they are with, with, you know, like you said, like I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, uh, that big dollar sign on that, uh, that Shattenkirk buyout, you know, I, I, in that case, yeah, like you might have to, have to suck it up and deal with Mark Stahl for one more year. I, I like with the Predators, I kind of worry a little bit about having a guy like, or having guys like Zaban and Jad and Panarin who are kind of only getting older and kind of wasting a year of their uh, of what's left of their primes, but you know they might not really have a choice there. They've kind of sped things along. They skipped the line a little bit on their rebuild, and there are benefits to that. And I guess they're also going to have to deal with uh, potentially one of the consequences as well. What do you do in goaltending for them? Obviously, Shesterkin, he's the present and future in goal. But what do you do with the ghost of the past in Henrik Lundqvist? I see three courses of action, Jack. Maybe you could tell me which one you like the most. Uh, you just you keep them as your one B, and you pursue uh, Georgiev trades. You could buy him out, which is probably the easiest option. Like he just, it doesn't seem like he's ready to go quietly. So you, you buy out Lungfist and you force his hand, and you pay. You add on to the the tax that they have to pay this season. So it'd be five and a half million on the cap this year, but then only a million and a half on the cap next year, and you free up two and a half million that you can spend on on a player who could maybe help you uh, this year. And it's an ugly end for a franchise icon, but it it, it doesn't usually go well or can you convince him and he of the of a full new no move clause to take a trade and maybe you do uh same thing we talked about with Turris where you retain 50 percent of the salary suddenly Lundqvist is only 4.25 million on the cap suddenly the salary is only 2.25 million for this year and Eugene Melnick's ears just perked up Um, right so I wonder if you can get his buy-in to go to a, a team that's goalie needy, but is an actual contender. If at 4.25 million, he wouldn't be someone who actually gets assets back in return for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a conversation you have to have, be willing to have with them. Uh, yeah. I mean, like the, the buyout thing is like a, an absolute worst case scenario, especially like you said, with, with the Shattenkirk situation. Um I, I do think that you're you're right in terms of the Rangers have to set themselves up as nicely as possible for uh, for for next year, like for for when all the money comes off the books. So I, I think you know I kind of wonder what that bio looks like if you kind of wait one more year on it. I, I obviously I don't have a calculator off the top of my head, um, but yeah, I think it's it's going to be awkward no matter what. Uh, buying them out this year 
obviously would be kind of the nuclear option and would, would severely limit whatever they want to do this year and would probably lead to them, for instance, like trading Strom or, or moving Anthony D'Angelo, for example, and kind of figuring out things from there. But uh, yeah, no, it's really kind of one of those no-win situations. Uh, I, personally, you know, I think it would be kind of nice if he was able to uh, to stick around there for at least one more year, uh, you know, especially considering, you know, I think maybe I'm just moved by that one picture of him on the bench after the Rangers lost. That uh, that was a real tearjerker. So it'd be too bad if that's how we how he goes out with the uh, with with New York. But yeah, no, it's just it's it's going to be awkward no matter what. And you know, if he if he wants to seriously compete for a cup, he would probably have an opportunity to do it with uh, with a team with cap space. So yeah, I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, I've I've got these dreams of him waving his no move and the Rangers keeping half of the money and him coming to Edmonton for like a, a cap dump like Chris Russell, but that's uh that's very pie in the sky. I think more realistic options if New York was willing to trade in division would probably be a team like Washington or Carolina. Um yeah. San Jose, I think, because uh, Martin Jones is cooked, and I mean he's they're they're a cap space issue team, but I, I wonder about Lundqvist for them. And then if Tuka Rask retires early, how about Boston? Are we counting on Tuka Rask retiring early? I mean, I I just I think it could happen. He's already talked about retiring at the end of this contract, and that's only got one year left on it. And now he's left the bubble for good reason. Um, yeah. No, no criticism of that, but I just think that maybe he just decides they, they might have to play bubble hockey again next year, and he might right. just decide, nah, nah, I'm not coming back. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, yeah, in, in that situation, you know, I guess that would make sense for the uh, for the Bruins, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there would be no lack of teams that would be interested in a 4.5 million dollar Henrik uh, Lundqvist. I guess the question is just uh, how much he would be willing to, I guess allow flexibility in terms of games that he would be willing to be traded to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the ultimate question. And I, I think that this ultimately ends with the, uh, the, the worst case scenario of a, of a buyout. Um, you mentioned in, in your postmortem that they should be a team that considers an offer sheet uh, I, I think that the best offer sheet situations are similar to what San Jose did to Chicago, where they dual offer sheeted uh, Antti Niemi and uh, Nicholas Jalmerson and ultimately pried uh, Niemi out of uh, Chicago, maybe uh, maybe spiting themselves in the process. But uh, a sorelli Sergachev dual offer sheet would certainly uh, be one way to pry an, an excellent player uh, out of a uh, potential rival. Yeah, and I guess that's where that's where their money decisions become pretty con- uh, consequential because if they're paying a crap load of buyout dollars next year, then obviously they won't have the flexibility to pull that something like that off. But yeah, one that, one that I think is like particularly interesting, Sorelli would be great because Sorelli obviously kind of opens up that, like like if he can be their second line center of the future, then that is fantastic news for them. And then that could end up solidifying them as kind of a team that could has dynasty potential. Uh, but even kind of, a, you know, targeting a guy like Devon Taves from the Islanders, he's a guy who's probably not going to get a giant pile of money. He's a left defenseman. He's on a rival team, which means that there's not going to be any love loss between them anyway. 
and uh, and he's I mean he's quietly been been exceptional in the past couple of years. Like he he has the best uh, the best underlying numbers on the Islanders. He played top four role this uh, this season. And uh, if they can get him at like you know less than five million dollars, that's not too expensive in terms of picks. Certainly, it's less than you would pay for a guy of his caliber in the trade market. And uh, the Islanders just have no money to uh, to and and not really much ability to free anything up to to deal with that. So. I think that would be a great situation for the for the Rangers. I'm not sure whether it's something that they would have the guts to do, but uh, it would definitely be fun to see them do it. So I, I'm kind of rooting for that kind of chaos. Yeah, I mean, for for so many reasons, that would be fantastic, right? The the New York rivalry uh, sparked up again. Uh, for 4.2 million, you only have to give up the compensation of a second rounder, which would be like peanuts for for a quality defenseman of, of Devon Taves's caliber. And I just, I just want to be there for when Lou gets the news that one of his guys got offer sheeted. Cause you saw what happened back in the nineties when someone tried to sign uh, Scott Stevens away from him. And he like, he, he wrecked the St. Louis blues for years uh, because of tampering. Yep. So and you know, again, if there was if there was ever a team that oversheet, people talk a lot about the uh, about the Lightning. But the thing with about the Lightning is that they have guys on movable contracts that they can shift around to to get to free money. Like they can move Pallad or Killorn or, or a guy like that. The Islanders really don't like they like I, I I wrote that whole article kind of detailing their cap situation in full, and there really is not anybody who is either expendable or desirable who they have on the books who they could probably easily get rid of without the team probably asking for a decent amount of uh, paid compensation in return so like like the Islanders are really up against the wall and, and if the team was willing to really kind of gut them especially on, on you know whether it's on Barzal who obviously like the Islanders have to keep and would pay anything to uh, to get back on the roster uh, or even just kind of chipping away at the edges in, uh, in underrated guys like Taves and, and Kulak, I feel like that would be an awesome opportunity to really piss Lou off. Yeah, and the other thing with Tampa Bay is you actually have to get the player to sign the offer sheet, and there seems to be very little indication that anyone other than Durant has ever wanted to leave Tampa Bay. And, like, I I kind of treat all their RFAs as uh, – playing under what I call troll rules they're they're all living under the bridge and it's just it's going to happen again yeah no exactly so that'd be fun um Jack this was an absolute marathon I think this is going to end up being uh, like broken up into two separate podcasts because you were super generous with your time we went super deep on all these teams way deeper than I thought that we would uh you, you were wonderful fantastic patient um do you have anything that you would like to plug before we jet yep just uh gonna say if you haven't uh, read my stuff before I see my stuff before uh, I'm, I'm on twitter as jfreshhockey uh, I'm on a little bit of a slight social media hiatus right now, just because I went so crazy hard during the uh, during the NHL's hiatus. But I will be back up and running it with more frequency pretty soon. Uh, you can see my data visualizations and stuff like that, kind of trying to make stats that can be a little bit complex, a little bit more uh, pretty to look at, but also understandable. Uh, so you can see I post them intermittently on on Twitter, but if you want full access to them, you can go on my Patreon. Uh, which is also under the name JFresh. Uh, for $5 a month, you get full access to uh, a large variety of different 
visualizations and, and generators and stuff, which can be uh, fun to mess around with and waste time with. Uh, if you're interested in reading my work, uh, uh, like uh, you mentioned, it's on uh, substack.com. I think it's just slash JFresh. Uh, I've written a whole bunch of stuff on a whole bunch of different teams, including some of the playoff postmortems that we uh, referred to, but also if you want to read a little bit more detail on stuff I've talked about, like the Isles cat situation or Jack Johnston or uh, Seth Jones, uh, have a whole bunch of words on there that you can uh, dive into and uh, hopefully have a little fun with. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. Right on, Jack. You've been uh, one of my favorite uh, discoveries of the pandemic. So silver, we've talked about silver linings. Um, you know, COVID sucks, but at least I found your work and, uh, you, you know, you were, uh, you were a great guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, everyone, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening in. Stick tap to JFresh for coming on the pod and doing this lengthy two-part episode. Uh, I plan on doing a part three. Uh, probably have uh, a couple of folks on to talk about uh, the remaining teams that were eliminated uh, in the first round of the playoffs that we didn't get to on these series of pods. Uh, so look out for that hopefully later this week. In the meantime, uh, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, stay safe out there.